Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. Hello, it's really good to be back. It's been a few weeks, uh, but I'm really excited to talk about this game today. Uh, And to help us with that, we're also joined by Jamie Chang, the founder of Clay Entertainment. Hello there. And we we also welcome James Lance, a game designer at Clay. Uh, Jamie and James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about Clay's upcoming Invisible Ink, a turn-based tactical stealth roguelike, a description that makes me think we may need to start defining additional genres uh, before I give myself an aneurysm. <laughs> um, but I'll turn it over to the Clay gang here at the start. So, fellows, what is Invisible Ink? And uh, tell us a little bit about the design inspirations behind it. Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, I mean, you can definitely, you can take roguelike and you can just keep saying like as many times as you want to describe the genre. Like the more times you say like, I think the more accurate it gets. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Visible Ink is like a, it's a tactical espionage game is uh, what we're kind of calling it right now. And that means that it's a game about being a spy. It's about being a spy in a turn-based uh, corporate landscape. So there are these guards that are patrolling around. Uh, you, they, they take their turn, you take your turn. And it's a turn-based game, but it's also single-player, which is somewhat unusual. You know, a lot of turn-based games are kind of act as if there are two competing armies. But in our game, is very asymmetrical. So you are a, a stealthy spy. You're sneaking around these procedurally generated corporate uh, landscapes, these, uh, these office buildings, mostly. And... Um, you're taking on guards, you're taking out uh, special enemies, you're hacking through mainframe devices like cameras to see what they're looking at. And the game is all about kind of gathering information to plan your next move. And so we try to give the player a lot of like really high-level information concepts so they can see everything, understand everything, and they're really trying to play you know, one or two moves ahead. Or you could even say you know, three moves ahead, right? Do you understand? You, you, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. So that, I mean, that's sort of the fundamental idea of Invisible Ink. Is it really, I mean, it really is about planning ahead. It, it's a lot about, you know, gathering information, making a plan in your mind, mm-hmm. and then executing that plan as best you can. And we really try to make it less about, uh, you know, dice rolls and, and hit percentages, right? We tried to take all that stuff out in order to really let the sort of um, core fundamental planning take place. Because, you know, in a game like chess, you can think, you know, 15 steps ahead because there's yeah. not a lot there, right? And so we really tried to embrace that idea. And uh, tell me a little bit, like what were, what were some what were some other games you, you were looking at as you as you were getting into this? Uh, is there even anything that provides a, a useful template for for what you were trying to do here? So I mean, when we're we're creating this game, uh, you know, obviously XCOM was was a was a big inspiration. Uh, Syndicate was a big inspiration for us uh, from the beginning, uh, and it was just like kind of the feeling of Syndicate as opposed to the actual mechanics of Syndicate of, you know, controlling a a, a elite group of people that can do amazing things. And as we built it more and more, it became you know more and more of a stealth game. And uh, that's when it really caught, kind of got its groove, where we realized that uh, this is. Basically, the truest stealth game that, that that we've seen that that we were trying to we were striving for, and, and obviously, you know, we built Mark of the Ninja before, uh, but but to us, this is this is what a real spy would feel like. You know, he he goes in and he's not exactly sure what's going to happen, and he's got limited time, and he's trying to figure out, um, you know, what's going on out there. He's trying to get the information and then act quickly on that information and act precisely. Um, and the fact that it's procedurally generated means that. 
you know, every play is still like that. You don't you don't get to cheat. You don't just get to die and then go, oh, I know exactly where the guards are. I know exactly where the layout is. Every time you feel like you feel like a spy, and that that ended up being a kind of our, our guiding principle. What 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 does it actually feel like to infiltrate some place that could kill you at any moment? So, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the the roguelike aspect because I think one of the things that really it's a double-edged sword with stealth games, right? Is that stealth games are really fun and enticing and there's a lot of tension baked into that and a lot of planning. But then sort of a recurring problem with the stealth genre is it also pisses people off because it's so easy to reach a failure state or uh, a death spiral. And here, you know, there there is no reload option. Uh, there, it's it's very much you you go into you go into a facility, and this is your run. You're, every time you every time you go in, um, you're sort of betting your game on on, on the outcome. And uh, just I'm I'm curious to hear you guys sort of ex- explore that a little bit and talk talk me through how you sort of handle that how how you handle that sort of devil's bargain when it comes to stealth gaming. Stressfully. <laughs> Correct. So actually something really interesting happened over the last couple of weeks of Invisible Inks development, last couple of months. Um, so uh, we used to have this game where it was basically a, a super hardcore roguelike, right? And Invisible Ink takes, you know, a newer player maybe, if you beat the game in, in uh, you know, your third or fourth run, maybe that run takes four or five hours to complete. And so at the final level, you're asking players to say exactly what you said, right? Which is you're gambling this four and a half hour long experience you've had on this single mission. And what we found is that, you know, basically strategy gamers, they're, they're kind of like a lot of strategy gamers come in different shapes and sizes, right? And some strategy gamers are really willing to make that gamble, but other strategy gamers are more interested in different parts of the game, right? They're more interested in especially a lot of tinkering and experimentation and and kind of playing their own way, you know? Um, And so what we ended up doing was we ended up kind of creating the option to actually have some of that reload. And it actually synced up really nicely with Invisible Ink. So if you play the game on beginner level or if you just tick an option in the in the campaign generation, you can reload uh, a level that you failed. But But it's not really a reload. That's right. It's a regeneration, which is really key in our design because what we don't want is for people to lose that challenge. Right. Every time you want to come in and you still want to be working for your information, and that, that has always have been, been a, a really key component for our game, is working for, for the information that you need in order to succeed. Yeah, so it actually fit perfectly for us because we actually had this uh, concept of procedural generation already in place. So it, it, it didn't actually take away from the difficulty or the challenge or the interestingness of the game to have that reload option. Uh, but yeah, we, we sort of put it in the last couple of months. Uh, I mean, ultimately, how I feel about it is that the the permadeath of it is is really uh, it is really a key part of the game. Uh, however, it takes uh, many hours to play the game to really understand all the different components. So when we were playing with with uh, newcomers, a lot of uh, at times, you know, they felt like um, I, I think the the worst feeling that to have in 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 a in a, uh, a, a permadeath game is to feel like you died and it just totally wasn't your fault and it was because you just didn't understand the game yet and you sunk hours into it and you know it wasn't it, it was just because you know uh, basically DSX, right? Mm-hmm. And so in in this way, uh, you know, we're easing people in, but 
ultimately, I feel like the, the the core part of the game is with the permadeath on, mm. and uh, and props possibly with one rewind, which is what we actually have as a default. You have one rewind, so you can go back one step per level, and that's you know to, to solve you know uh, things like misclicks and and things like oh you know I, I, just just easing up a little bit. And I, I think that actually John Blow had this really pretty cool thing where he was talking about uh, you know game design where once in a while. You just kind of need to let go a little bit, <laughs> yeah. right? And how I feel like is for a year and a half, we were clenching our ass for a year and a half, you yeah. know? And then finally, we just kind of let go a little bit. That's yeah. kind of how it felt to me. <laughs> yep. And uh, it actually worked out super, super well because we designed an extremely tight system that, that worked uh, um, extremely well for the hardcore and then kind of widened the net just at the end. What I really love about Invisible Ink and the time that I've been playing it is how it it's really the player versus him or herself. I mean, there's you have this map, the procedural generation, that's all great. But it's because you don't have um, critical hits. There isn't, a, there isn't a weapons combat engine here. There's not a lot of dice rolling beyond the procedural generation. So it is the player working against their own worst instincts. Um, one of my favorite parts of a good strategy game is knowing when to stop pushing my luck. And so much of this game seems to be, how greedy can you get? And is that sort of something that was intended in the design to have Absolutely. this... Because this, the the real enemy in the game is time. You never have enough time to get everything, to see everything, especially in the uh, more complicated facility levels. But, you know, you're, it, it's a bit of a heist game going on here. You want that huge, big score. Um but do you have enough time to grab it and get out? Or what if they you left a body dragged behind a planter or something and somebody walks by and sees it? Uh, there's So much of this is the player versus their own baser instincts. So how does that play into design? Because uh, so many of Clay's games have this, well, how much do you think you can get away with? aspect to it. I mean, Don't Starve is probably the best example of this. I put too many hours into right. <laughs> being, not, being not very good at it because I try to get away with too much. Uh, so it's a strategy game where that's a, it's a feeling I'm at home with. So can you talk about how that fits into the Invisible Link design? I think it's like super, it's basically super core to, to everything that we were doing is, you know, we talked a lot about giving them just enough rope to hang themselves, yep. you know, making every decision a, a tough decision, a meaningful decision. Um, are there certain things that, that you think? Yeah, of? totally. So the, in my mind, the reason the game works at all, and this became very clear to us, I think, when we started trying to design bosses basically. So we have the final level. We don't have any bosses in the game. But we have the final level, and originally it was going to be sort of a boss level, right? And uh, I was making it. I was making uh, some bosses stuff. I was doing, you know, all these challenges, all these hoops you had to jump through. And I was like, this just isn't as fun as the regular game. And I realized that the reason it wasn't as fun as the regular game was because you didn't have that risk-reward element, right? As soon as it was just as soon as we splinter celled it, as soon as it was, it, it was just a, an obstacle you were trying to get past, right? Like most games are at, at all times. 
um, the game became a lot less interesting. I think it, it, it really is about fighting yourself in that way. And I think the, the core idea of having all these safes around the level, and they all have money in them, and you don't have to touch any of them. It's totally not part of the objective of the game. Um, and the game sort of just lets you figure out what type of person you are in that context, right? Do you go for them? When are you too scared to leave? How do you like adjust your fear levels accordingly um, as you learn the game? So I think, you know, it's really the fundamental idea of the game is you need to prepare for this, this looming thing at the end. Uh, and here's a bunch of stuff in between. And it, it's all directed, but it's also up to you, right? And you can prepare very poorly. You can prepare very well. You can spend too much time in the level. But to me, yeah, definitely all my favorite, my favorite versions, my favorite things that have happened in the game have all been because I stayed one turn too long or I grabbed a safe that I really didn't need to get. And uh, on, on the flip side, all my favorite victories have been because I grabbed a safe that I, I really did need to get, right? And it was like super tough, and I was like, oh, I, got, I cleared it, I cleared it. Um, well, I, personally, I love the moments where, and I see it a lot, where, where someone gets too greedy, and they get themselves into a really bad situation, but they get out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are super, super fun. Yeah. And, and they do it in a really creative way that, that even we had never thought of. Um, you know, there was one where, where uh, one, of the, one of the programs in the office, uh, he, he set a sh shock trap, and then uh, one of the guards got a drop on him. And so he set off the shock trap on himself so that his agent would fall over and keel over and play dead, play possum. So that the guard wouldn't shoot him. He's like, hey, you wouldn't shoot a dead person, would you? And sure enough, they didn't shoot the dead person. He's like, yeah, see, uh, I knew that would happen. That's what, I, I totally planned for that. <laughs> and it was, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of, I think that, that that kind of system works super well with a permadeath kind of game mm. where uh, it is your decision that led you to that ev uh, eventual fate, mm -hmm. right? And that makes it so that it's still interesting to replay as well, because, hey, these are your decisions to try, yeah. as opposed to this is just the same obstacle again. It, it's especially interesting because it's not just your own greed that you're up against here, because also, like, caution, ex excessive caution, is also something that in the long term will be self-defeating. It's this, it's this really interesting dynamic where, on the one hand... Uh, you can do the absolute most in the early stages of, of your, your time in the level. The, the alert level is very low. Every time you enter a level, you, you start with a, with a very low alert level, so a lot of security cameras aren't activated. Uh, there, are fewer, there are fewer guards running around. Um, and the longer you spend the level, the more aware the facility becomes that there's intruders and the more they begin trying to actively hunt you down. And as you do things like knockout guards or... Uh, you know, occasionally kill them. Uh, you you will have the alert level increase. Uh, you know, breaching systems will will increase the uh, alert level. Um, but just spending time in the facility, even just hanging out there, uh, the 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 levels increasing as well. So it's not just that there there's always this. Uh, it's not just the trap of gold you're up against, where you always think, well, there's all those safes in the next room. If I just go in there, just one more room, and I'll clear those safes, and th then I'll quit. Then I'll then I'll get out. But then there's also the uh, um, uh, the flip side is there's those moments where you're sitting in cover for like two turns, waiting for a group of guards to cycle into the right positions, so you can maneuver through a room completely undetected uh, and get to a different part of the level. But while you're doing that, um, 
you know, you're 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 still in the long run going to be dealing with a higher alert level on, on the other side of that. And maybe you would have been better off uh, taking a more aggressive approach. And so it's 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 really interesting this the various ways the game sort of conspires to put you in that moment where you've just stayed too long at the fair. Maybe it was greed. Uh, maybe it was the fact that you, you were kind of a bit too perfectionist at a, at a certain point or, or too nervous at a certain point. But here you are now, and you're sort of trapped in the vault while security's you know, beating down the door. <laughs> and you're trying to figure out, how do I get out? Yeah, uh, James and I are just high-fiving right now. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, specifically, we, we again, you know, going back to feeling like uh, like a spy and getting out. We wanted to to you know get to that point where you, we, you know it's not boring to be a spy, and it's not like you can just stick around doing nothing, you know. Um, and and the conceit is that uh, you know the the uh, you're, you're teleported into each each building, and when you, they, you teleport in, they, they're starting to track your 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 signal down. And so, you know, that's how the alarm level goes up and up and up, even if you just spend time there because they can kind of feel that uh, your connection to your, 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 your agents are, are ongoing. Um, and, uh, and we built that uh, very specifically because, again, a, a lot of the systems break down if all you can do, if you can just kind of hang around and collect the power and just mm -hmm. observe people forever. Uh, and um, I, I don't know, it doesn't feel like... Uh, yeah. I mean, to give you sort of a dry design perspective on it, I don't know if you want that, but, um, you know, my uh, the original idea behind the alert level was basically just, I'm a huge roguelike fan. I play a ton of roguelikes. I play, uh, you know, Tome and, and all those. And I really think that, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of also just respecting or at least thinking about certain genre conventions and why they exist. And if they exist for a reason, you know, you should either figure out how to solve that with something else or, or respect them. And uh, hunger, hunger mechanics is something huge in roguelikes. So uh, the reason that hunger mechanics exist in roguelikes um, is because the game breaks down if they don't exist. If the player can just sit in one spot forever and do nothing, they won't do that because it's boring. But they'll think, oh, I could have done that. This game is broken. And they'll stop playing the game, right? So there's sort of like, it sort of breaks the end. All the mechanics break down without a hunger clock. The hunger clock is the thing that, one of the many things that keeps roguelikes all together. Um, and so I, I was like, if we're going to make a roguelike, we need a hunger mechanic. And what's a spy? What's hunger for a spy, right? It's clearly not. He has to go eat goblin <laughs> bones every 20 minutes. But, you know, he does have to. He is on a timer. He's on a clock. And that, that's also a classic spy movie thing. But it's also a, a core roguelike design mechanic that I think is really important to any roguelike sort of working, even if, it, even if it's a roguelike-like-like. Um, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the procedural generation. Where I'll start, actually, is, okay, basically, is it just me? Or is all the good stuff always located in the part of the level I did not immediately choose at the start? Like, if the level forks, it always feels like, for some reason, I don't know if it's just a psychological thing or if it's the way the levels are, the way the levels are generated, but it always feels like the really high-value areas are sort of the last thing left to explore, the last thing left on the docket. And, I, and I'm kind of curious, is that just... Um, an artifact of just psychologically you you always sort of get greedy for that little last bit that you you've sort of left in the uh le left in the level or does the gen or does the level generate in such a way that uh the the highest value areas will always be sort of the last thing you get to the the, the hardest path from the starting area um i have to say that uh it's it's more that uh it's more luck there 
Okay. I guess you, you could call it that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even call it luck, though. I mean, it's we, we certainly hint the procedural generation in certain ways, uh, and it's called procedural uh, for that reason because you know we are definitely giving it a lot of heuristics to to work with, so that you know you don't come up with totally stupid levels. Um, but certainly, um, oftentimes, well, for example, we'll put the exit. The exit will just show up right next to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's on purpose because and that that we let that go because that's your prerogative if you want to leave early, um, and and you know if there's a deten if you're going to the detention center the detention center might be quite close to you as well mm -hmm. again that's your prerogative because uh, there are safes all around the level, and so if you're not basically what it is is if you're not exploring the entire level you're not getting the majority of the it is quite spread out where everything is. Is, is what it ends up okay. being, right? Uh, but per, uh, uh, um, it's totally possible that the thing that you really want is literally in the next room. Yeah, there are some, there are some rules to the procedural generation that may uh, tend to create that psychological perception, for sure. Like, like Jamie was saying, stuff gets pushed further away from each other. Um, I think it, it ge actually generates all of the good stuff first, and then it sort of like, it, it looks, if something's really far away from the exit, it'll make it better. So there is a little bit of like stuff where the further something is from the exit, the slightly better it is. But it's actually very minor. But you might pick up on it sort of unconsciously or, or even consciously at a certain point that there does tend to be good stuff kind of off in the corners of the levels. Not necessarily not where you checked first, but, but off far away, more or less. So tell me a little bit more about the procedural generation because I'm just kind of, I'm always kind of curious. I'm always kind of interested in systems like this because... It certainly it's one thing if like you have randomly generated dungeons because you know going back to you know old rpgs you know what's a dungeon it's 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 hallways it's rooms there's some crap in that there you fight it whatever it's e easy peasy um but here obviously that's that's not going to be sim that's not it's not going to be quite that simple uh here you you're sort of creating levels that have to have these sort of viable stealth routes through them and places for you to sort of uh be hiding be hiding from the guards and I, I'm curious. Was it was was doing a procedurally generated stealth game a particular challenge, or uh, has like techniques for procedural generation come so far that uh, it, it was just applying them in a different direction? I had lost count how many times I discussed with the team, hey, you know, it would be so much easier if we just made the levels instead of generated them. Uh, it is. Uh, it was. It was a massive challenge, and and uh, pr probably one of the big reasons why this game took longer than all our other games, actually. Um, and uh, it's it's not at all a solved problem um, in, in the sense that there's lots of different ways to procedurally generate something. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're making a new kind of game, and we don't know which one's going to work out, basically. Uh, and, and if you look at some of our alphas, uh, they were very boxy. The levels were, were literally in a, um, in a rectangle. They, they fit exactly into a rectangle, and we cut that up. Um, and, uh, and then you could kind of figure out the extents and work around that, and it was really boring. Mm -hmm. uh, and all the levels felt the same, um, and there were lots of paths to the same place. Uh, and so we needed to create more interesting kind of paths, so we made this more spidery kind of feel to it, where sometimes there would be choke points, sometimes there's lots of paths. Uh, there's, um, there's multiple uh, different generations in the game, so sometimes you get a different feel where there's more open areas, and sometimes it'll be a lot more claustrophobic. Uh, and uh, all of that needed to still feel like it was somewhat plausible as a place. Mm -hmm. Somewhat. 
somewhat plausible. And we had a lot of that discussion too, where you know we'll be arguing, you know, um, design over plausibility. Where it's just like, why would there be a desk in this area? Yeah. Well, the bathroom's on a different floor of all these. It is always, <laughs> always. Uh, and, uh, and and so uh, it was it was it was a huge challenge. It was it was even even toward the end. It was still like maybe we should just design the first few levels for people, yeah. and, and things like that. And so uh, you know there was a lot of um, uh, heuristics that we had to think about in order to give a, a more evened approach. Yeah. I'd also say that I think the problem was so hard that I don't think we even I wouldn't even say that we solved it. You know what I mean? Like I think we did a good job, and I'm really happy with how our procedural generation ended up. But I would say like much less than like it being easy with procedural generation techniques, I would say there's still a lot you could do there, actually. Like if someone came in and did another procedural stealth game after this, I think there's a lot you can do that's really interesting. And I think really what we did is we, it was such a tough problem to make procedural stealth work at all that we kind of just started chipping away at it. And we started learning properties of procedural generation that mattered for our game. So one of those is like just just by creating levels and playing them, we were like, oh, this is important. The the connectivity of a level is one that ended up being huge. So that means the number of doors that are open and the number of doors that are locked and the placement of those doors in various rooms um, changed how you played massively. If there was a shortcut to a room that you could get through, then it would be very, very different to stealth through that area than if there was no shortcut. So what we ended up doing there is basically making it so some doors were locked and needed a pass card. So the idea is that the levels are a little bit hard to stealth through at first, and then you get a pass card, and then suddenly the connectivity of the level opens up quite a bit. So that we did that, that was an example of one thing, but we did that with a lot of other procedural properties that ended up being really important for how the stealth gameplay played out, that we sort of, some of them we thought up ourselves, and some of them we sort of just discovered as the organic properties of the game became clear to us. I, uh, James, I saw your uh, GDC talk uh, on Gamma Sutra, and I watched that last week. Oh, nice! And Thank you. <laughs> it was it was uh, it was really really good. Um, just doing my research for the show, and oh, you went through a lot of the talk of the inspirations and the like, and you made this. What I thought was a really great point about so many stealth games that once you introduce, you know, weapons. And the ability to shoot things. When a mission then goes tits up, it stops being a stealth game. It becomes something completely different. And the players have this fallback position they can just keep using if things go poorly. Could you talk a bit for our listeners about getting past that and through that and what it says about, I guess, design in general that there aren't many games where quiet is so important yeah absolutely well i think one of the things we wanted to do with this game is make it uh, very particularly about being a spy and um one of the things i talked about a little bit in the gc talk was just that if you look at metal gear solid and you look at splinter cell and you look at hitman these are classic stealth games they're some of my personal favorite games of all time but they're all basically sandbox games um, when it comes down to it, in Metal Gear Solid, you're kind of just being stealthy because it's fun. You don't need to be stealthy. You can kind of trank everyone if you want to. You can also just shoot everyone if you want to. You can also just run through with a M249 and like mow down everyone. <laughs> That's like a totally viable strategy in Metal Gear Solid. And if you've watched uh, Giant Bombs playthroughs of Metal Gear Solid, you'll know how viable that is. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's 
It's interesting, and I love that style of stealth game, but I was sorely missing a stealth game that wasn't a sandbox game, that had a little tightness to it and kind of pushed back at you, right? If you tried to push at it, it pushes back at you. So one of the things we did with combat is you can shoot people. It's not like we've removed that option, but the game just pushes back at you a little bit. It's like maybe you shouldn't have shot that person, or maybe, maybe we're going to make your life a little bit tougher because you made your life a little bit easier in that one way, right? Now we're changing up the game on you. Um, and so we just tried to make a system that was, was tight in that way, that pushed back at you when you pushed at it, and didn't just crumple, you know, as soon as you said, I don't want to be stealthy anymore. It was like, okay, great, do whatever you want, you know? Um, so I think that was one of our big inspirations for Invisible Ink, was kind of making what Jamie said what we felt like was a true stealth game, right? Um, and Mark the Ninja is similar in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of ways we took a lot of inspiration for this from Mark the Ninja, right? And Mark the Ninja, once you get into a bad situation, it's also very hard to get out through combat. So there was a lot of uh, groundwork built up, I think, in the development of Mark of the Ninja for Invisible Ink in that way. I think one of the, the um, interesting parts is, is uh, the, how frugal um, the design is uh, in both of those games from the, from the combat standpoint, and I think that matters a lot. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in Ninja, we just don't give you the option of slicing uh, of, of, of straight-up combat. And in fact, we actually implemented uh, a combat system in Mark of the Ninja where you could uh, counter uh, guards. They, they would come at you and then you can counter their move and then you would kill them and, and back and forth. And we could easily have made that be uh, also very difficult and push back at you and you die. But the fact that there is a whole lot of game there, a the whole lot of design there, signals to players that, oh, that is a thing that I can do and should do. And so in, uh, 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 in Invisible, uh, we could have kept the whole you know, percentage chance of shooting and all that kind of stuff and still made it just as hard or harder to fight people, to shoot people. But by having those things there and having to teach people those things, it gets it so that people are saying, oh, maybe that's a, a valid strategy. Instead, we made it super, super simple, super, super easy to understand. You can shoot people, it costs you like $300 to, per shot, you know, and, uh, and the alarm level goes up and there's a cleanup cost and that's it. That's, that's the whole thing and they're dead forever. Right, so it was it was pretty interesting that that uh, you know design things like that um, uh, beyond just the 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 surface level of how hard is it um, signals to players what they should do. Totally, and I think it also helps to keep the way we did it with the simplicity. I think we we're all trying to make it part of the same package, right? Whereas, like if you look at a. Hitman or something, there are multiple different ways to complete a level, right? You can go in hot, you can go in cold, you can go in silent, you can do all this different stuff. Um, in our game, those are all the same thing. They're all part of the same bundle of, of you're, you're a spy, right? You're in this place. You're trying to get out. These are your options. These options are all available to you. It's not necessarily, there are some play style differences. There are, there are definitely play style differences. But it's also that someone who usually knocks out everyone might be like, crap, you know, I really need to have a lethal option in this situation. Because that's what sort of being an espionage agent is like, um, you know. From movies, we think. <laughs> <laughs> we did our research. Yeah, that's we went right. And, we went and infiltrated yeah. a bunch of places. We first. can't talk about it more than that. That's but, right. Yeah. Well, I actually, I actually felt sort of relieved that there's no, there's really no plan B when it when it comes to stealth, besides possibly running like hell or carefully trying to arrange some kind of encounter that will maybe let you stun someone and get away, uh, which require which requires a bit of luck and and quite a lot of planning, because uh, because yeah I, I feel like uh, stealth games that do give you that option, um, I don't know it isn't an inherently unsatisfying solution uh, right because I think 
Dishonored has a bit of this. I think it's even worse in a game like Hitman, uh, where there's kind of a self-loathing that comes when when you just sort of go loud and give up and just start mowing you know mowing down every single person level i think i've had hitman levels that ended with every single uh like non-civilian npc dead uh at the end um and and yeah that's that's something that's that's a weird tension that a lot of these games end up having and i don't think it's a good one because uh, because then you're always left with the feeling of yeah i cleared that level but i, I didn't really beat it did i uh and, and here I, I kind of enjoy the fact that i've only got stealth that's the that's the only tool in my arsenal and so all that other stuff i just sort of put out put out of sight out of mind it's not about what i prefer to do it's what i have to do and i kind of enjoy that yeah and this blink if you clear a level you deserved it there's no there's no way to clear a level and not deserve it i think for sure um, you know, yeah, it's not, it's also, we tried to make it such that you could go down different paths, right? When you replayed the game, you could have a lethal build or you could have this other build, but it's never you giving up. I think you're totally right. It, it's all, we tried to make it so it was always your cleverness and ingenuity getting you out of that situation. And stealth was also always a piece of it. No matter what build you go for, stealth is a, is a piece, a significant chunk of that build, I think. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, sort of, sort of about the narrative and the the, the aesthetic in, inspiration uh, for for this game, because obviously it, it, the game opens with sort of a um, it's sort of a mission mission impossible one t- kind of situation, right? Your your spy agency has been completely burned. Uh, you have no assets, just a couple ace agents who who, who are left, and somehow you have to uh, turn everything around in in the course of a series of of, of rapid rapid fire missions, and. Uh, it also has this. Um, it, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult art style to describe for me because I, I just don't have the vocabulary for it. Uh, but but it definitely has sort of this. Um, you know, there's there's elements of cyberpunk, but then there's also elements of like uh, like almost fifty fifties like retro future sixties retro future to it. And I I find the the combination uh, really aesthetically interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at our, uh, our our old screenshots and our old um, assets, in fact, a whole bunch that we haven't even we, we never released, um, it got more and more futuristic as a, as it went along, uh, because it just kind of fit the kind of feels that we were going with, especially once we started uh, implementing all the programs and, and things like that that you you could install. Uh, but we always had like this kind of sixties, fifties, sixties feel to it, um, and and then it became a fifties, sixties inspired kind of feel to it. Um, and, uh, you know, every, every project we try to kind of uh, uh, flex uh, different, uh, different art styles and, and see where we can go, you know, push, it, push the boundaries in different ways. So, for example, the, the cinematic in the beginning, uh, you know, it's all done in 3D and it's all done in-house. Uh, and it's just something that we've never done before. But we felt like, hey, we could try that. And, and then we just did. Or rather, Jeff did. Jeff and, <laughs> and the rest of the artists who are amazing did. They really are. Um, and uh, and the art style uh, certainly evolved over time, as well as the the uh, the, the fiction behind it. You know, uh, Ke- uh, Kevin wrote the um, wrote the fiction behind it. He also wrote uh, Don't Starve, the the setting behind Don't Starve. Um, and uh, you know, a, a big sci-fi fan. Um, uh, obviously, as you say. Um, uh, um, Neuromancer and all that is, is is huge inspirations for us there. Yeah, absolutely. And I even remember, I sit next to, to a couple of the artists working on the project. I mean, it's a small team, so we all sit next to each other. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember looking over and I see all the time like 50s and 60s movie posters on their screens when they were doing initial character designs and stuff. And so that's a huge inspiration. You know, I mean, some one of my favorite things about the game's art is the the sort of splash of blue on everything. There's this really sharp, I don't even know what to call it. It's like this contrast on everyone's face and, and all, mm-hmm. all the lines in yeah. the game. Right. Um, and that, that was all, as far as I know, like, yeah, kind of like 50s, 60s spy movie posters in particular. And, uh, and just the ingenuity of, of uh, Jeff and, and the art team, for sure. Um, it's been really fun watching the, the art style evolve, evolve in that way and, and get, as, as Jamie said, more futuristic. As sort of the game got more futuristic, the, sort of every, the game sort of advanced like decades at a time as we were developing it. And eventually we were just like, okay, whatever. It's like, you know, we're just going to go full future at this point because, you know, the, the final vestige of the, uh, the game, the, the old game was the elevator that you rode up to get into the buildings. Well, actually, it's still there. Because, well, not the elevator, but Decker still have his, has his trench coat true, and, true. And, 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 you know, the, the whole hat thing. I mean, we even reference it and everything. Uh, but, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, one, the, one of the, the, the things I'm, 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 I'm really in awe of is, is um, the UI that Vince ended up doing. Mm. Uh, because there is so much UI there. The fact that people, if you guys aren't complaining about the UI, it's because Vince is amazing. Because there is so much of, there's yeah. so much UI in this game, um, and it was so easy. And, and in fact, for 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 most of the development, I think it was it was far too complex. Yeah, and he also did our music, which Indeed. is cra- He's a crazy person, a crazy talented person. Just to just to follow up on that uh, a, a little bit, uh, UI, UI I think is something of a uh, passion for Troy at least, uh, <laughs> but. I, I, I'm kind of curious because, for me, I think at this point a lot of the the UI has, has become sort of invisible to me. I'm aware that there are all these, you know, buttons and inventory uh, readouts, uh, you know, in the in lower parts of the screen, but it, it, it's very much a it's very much a thing that sort of fades into the background. And I'm kind of just I, I'm kind of curious to hear like your approach to inter- interface design with this game and sort of examples of like how you, how you sort of got it made it transparent. So, I think that if procedural stealth was the hardest part of this game to design, then I would say the UI was the hardest part of this game to develop in any way. And it, it took us, you know, what it really came down to was a lot of thought put into every UI element, and then a lot of iteration and a lot of testing on all of those. And we sort of had the combination of those two things. We didn't make any UI element lightly. And we also, every time we put something in, we we played it ourselves. We saw how it felt. Um, a lot of the times, basically the first pass of anything is not in there. There's very, very little in there that's the first pass of anything, and very little that's the second pass of anything. Most of the stuff is like fifth, fifth pass, sixth pass, just iterated into yeah. so many times until we eventually found something. And it, it was almost a project that was somewhere in between like psycho- like human psychology experiments and, uh, and game design. Because, you know, really what we were getting at was like, how do we make... Yeah, we basically... I mean, we didn't say this, but we basically sat down and we said, okay, Rob's going to play this game. How do we make the UI invisible to him, right? And so we, we had so much design thought, and then we just iterated over and over again and, and played to a point where we felt like each piece of UI was as intuitive as we could make it. From my perspective, um, you know, as, as I was, I was um, working with Vince on this and working with designers on this, it was like, uh, let's try to go the least we can at first. And it obviously wasn't going to be enough. And we just kept trying 
there uh, instead of saying so you know if I tutorialized everything and I put everything up front uh, you know I, I know that that works um, and it's ugly and kind of gross but mm. you know and it's very forefront and all that um, but I don't know if it's going to work if I remove it and so we, we remove a lot of stuff and we try without it and seeing if the players will, will kind of explore by themselves. And there was a lot of theory behind that of how do we encourage people to explore our UI. So that's why everything has, um, has a tooltip, for example. And we teach a lot of things through tooltips to encourage people to mouse over things and learn things by themselves. Uh, otherwise, everything has to be taught to you if that's how you feel like you're going to get taught. So we did a lot of that, and for like a year, you know, there was nothing else, and we just kept trying and tr and and hinting at player uh, for players. Hey, maybe you should try this. Maybe you should try this. And eventually, we got more heavy-handed as as time went on on the parts that we realized. No, we just really just got to tell tell people these things. And then another thing was we we ended up doing the, um, you know, uh, central being voiceovered was a big part. Of that, the, the the fact that we have a VO is because that's just another way to get information to the player, mm -hmm. and the way that we looked at it is that um, th we can't be sure that anyone's going to notice any one thing. So we're going to keep layering on this information so that eventually, you know, players might might catch on. Yeah, and I think one of the things, uh, two, two big principles we had throughout the course of the UI design was we didn't want to let UI dictate design in a lot of ways. I think we said, okay, what is the best way to design this? And then we'll deal with UI second, right? Whereas if you look at a lot of, like, you know, modern tactics games that are trying to appeal to a broad audience, they've clearly cut some features because they were too hard to UI, you know. And so we tried to avoid that as much as we could. And the other thing to that we did... That's right. <laughs> the other thing that we did a lot was um, making sure to break... Not, not being afraid of breaking UI conventions within our own game if it seemed intuitive, right? So one of the things is that if you walk up to a door, then the actions you can do on the door is right there on the door. And that's because that's where people look for it first. And that's where we look for it first. And that's the simplest form of that UI. But it's not really internally consistent, right? I mean, it's not, that's not true of, uh, of, of other actions you can do in the game. Specifically so, corners. If you're sitting on a corner, we don't put the peak at the corner. Mm -hmm. Because corners are everywhere in the game. Yeah. And so it would just clutter up the UI if we, if we had that consistent everywhere. And so what we found is that actually being internally consistent, we were overvaluing internal consistency in our UI. Um, it's not that it's not important. It's just that in our design processes, we were like, oh, you know, that doesn't work because uh, all the other actions are on this bar. And it's like, no, it does work. It, you just do it, and it just works, and people don't really mind, you know? Um, I think if you do it too much, it can get complicated. So it was all about finding a balance. But definitely, once we stopped being so afraid of, you know, mixing up, you know, not all the actions don't have to be friends all the time and all the items don't have to be friends all the time, um, then we were a, a little bit more able to get that feeling intuitive, I think. So tell me, tell me a little bit about designing for the end game. You referred to it a, a little bit uh, at times, and I, without giving too, too much away, you, you were talking about sort of building for, a, a, you know, sort of a boss encounter there at the end. And this is something that um, is, is difficult. It seems like a difficult problem to solve because, like, one of the few things I really did not like about FTL, uh, for example, and sometimes I feel like I'm alone on this because I... I nope, I'm, nope. Okay, because uh, <laughs> FTL, the moment I figured out, the moment I learned that the entire structure of the game is actually building towards this sort of rote boss battle, it killed FTL for me. 
Like, I, I think I played that boss fight, like, twice. And then I was done with FTL. Because Lon Ben's sort of this indistinct journey toward God knows what. I was on board. The moment it was like, oh, no, you really here's what you really need to get on your tra- journey across the stars. Because you're going to need this. Because the boss is going to do X, Y, and Z. The moment I, that that's what the game was, uh, I was out. And... But at the same time, there there should be an extra sense of like finality and difficulty and challenge uh, when it comes to, you know, the last stage of a game. I'm curious how you sort of struck that balance here. Did you um, just as a as a uh, startup question though? Did you uh, beat the game? Did you get to the end boss? No, I've started many many games, uh, but I have not made it to the end. Okay, I mean, I I, I think that. Um... Uh, ultimately, it comes back to to how a boss fight is structured, and especially in a stealth game, mm-hmm. I think I think a stealth game specifically makes things a lot more difficult because a stealth game is about non-confrontation, as opposed to obviously confrontation, and uh, and and the same thing happened in Mark of the Ninja where we built boss fights and. Uh, um, there's there's a boss fight in, in in Mark and the Ninja where there's this guy with a shotgun and if you get close to him he just shoots you and you're dead, and there's really no way to beat him um, until you figure out that you just go above and you drop a chandelier on him basically. <laughs> That's basically the the whole boss fight, and uh, and the point of that was was simply that we kept trying to make it so that you would fight him, and it just wasn't interesting because that's not at all what you do in the rest of the game. And we didn't want to build all new systems just for this thing. So eventually you did what you, the rest of the game you did, which was you avoid him and then you do something else to him. And, uh, you know, that kind of carried on uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to uh, um, you know, quote-unquote boss fight for, for Invisible Ink, which you can... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the ending boss fight of Invisible Ink um, solves some of those problems and also has some FTL in it. You know, there, there's definitely some FTL in Invisible Ink where, well, you know, one of our major inspirations was FTL, of course. And uh, there is some FTL in that final boss fight where, you know, there, there are a couple types of enemies that spawn. Those enemies are, are uh, you know, weak to certain things and stronger against certain things. But unlike FTL, you don't really need any of that stuff. And in fact, you can beat, if you're very, very good at the game, you could beat the final boss just, th- just through stealth alone. Um, but it also needs to be difficult, right? So you use the rest of the game uh, to build up towards that boss, as you were saying, um, really to give yourself better odds. To give yourself better odds and to, to make your life easier if the final boss goes very, very badly, which it quite really can. But if you're if you're an Invisible Ink master, if you've played for 500 hours or whatever, then you could probably uh, get away with... Um, some so a, a fairly weak build on the final boss on the easiest difficulty. Um, so I mean, basically, the, the the key thing that makes it different from FTL is that the final boss is is a level, so it's procedural. Um, there's no guaranteed of uh, you know drones that are going to come get you. There's no guaranteed ship layout. There's not the first stage that's cannons, the second stage that's drones, and the third stage that mm-hmm. so whatever the third stage of FTL is. Um, and so in that way, I think uh, it's a little bit less. Um, Linear and and full prepared than than FTL, but um, there there is a little bit of the idea that you're preparing for a final encounter that is uh, similar on each playthrough. But I think because the game is mostly about stealth, and because the the level itself is procedural and the enemies are procedural, uh, there there's hopefully less of uh, tension there. 
I mean, I, I simply feel that there's just way more options of how you might beat right. the final, uh, the final level, and it can feel completely different depending on how uh, what kind of build that you have, mm -hmm. um, and and nothing will completely screw you. And that's I would say is is the core tension of FTO, which is that hey, I don't have that thing that deals with the shields, I just can't I just can't beat them. Yeah. Period. Like there's just nothing I can do. Yeah. Right. Uh, whereas here, there's there's always something you can do. Mm. It just might be really really tricky. Also, a different design thing, a design track that we took in FTL is is in FTL, you get to the final boss and you're supposed to lose, and then you beat the first phase and then you're supposed to lose to the second phase, and then you beat the second phase and you're supposed to lose to the third phase, and then you win the game eventually. So every time it kills your run, kind of, it seems intentional that it kills your run. Um, in our boss, we we kind of balanced it and designed it so that you have a good shot at beating it the first time you ever see it. Um, and that was a big goal of ours because our, our game is longer and also because we found that was more interesting. We think it's more interesting if you get to the final boss and you, you have a chance at beating it even if you didn't know what it was going to be, right? Um, and that's kind of the DSX thing that, that I was talking about where, right. you know, it feels like you have the tools you need in order to, mm -hmm. to beat it. Um, and then and what's interesting about our game isn't just beating the final boss, it's actually all the rest of it is is the, the interesting which is you know the new agents that you unlock the new programs that you use the things that you buy along the way all of it is actually just really interesting um and one of the things that we were talking about uh, by the way uh, i love ftl so this is not at all like <laughs> an actual bash about it because sure, it was it, it's built on top in, in my in, in a lot of ways um is is that the, the act of the the act of playing FTL is about the meta game of dying and then restarting and all that, and the act of Invisible Ink is it has the meta game part, but also the internal parts of the meat of it is super interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm still enjoying it after a thousand hours, uh, and still finding new strategies, right? And uh, within one one specific run. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think of where to go from it. It's just a great talk, and I really, really, I'm really, really enjoying the game. I really love. We talked about the aesthetic, and we've talked about the core design. I guess it comes down to, I mean, the response has been pretty good. The people who've played it, the people who've looked at it, have really seen something special here. Um, you've got you've something about Clay. I want to ask because all of your games are so different from each other. Look through Clay's uh, gamography, and. Okay, you have another stealth game, Mark of the Ninja, but it's nothing at all like this. And you have Don't Starve, which is kind of a roguelike, but a survival game and nothing at all like this. All of your games look very different from each other. They play very different from each other. And you're a small team with a lot of versatile skills. So I guess it comes down to how the hell do you do it? Because this is uh, quite a lot of variety from of quite... You know, it's you're not a you're not a huge studio that can just have an infinite variety of of, of tools to bring to the table. Um, in in a lot of ways, we're we're just kind of chumps, right? Because if we just made Mark of the Ninja two, uh, people would want that, and and that that sounds you know like I've been told a lot of times, why don't I make Mark of the Ninja two? Yeah. Um, but in and um, I, I guess uh, we get bored easily. Yeah, we have a sickness. Our yeah, sickness exactly. is that we want to design new stuff, basically. Right. We, we want to explore the medium. And I think that um, any one of those things, it builds... Uh, I mean, uh, as, as I said, you know, Invisible Ink built a lot on Mark and the Ninja. And I definitely learned a lot from, from Don't Starve. Uh, it may not be the same kind of game, but we, we are definitely learning in each, each, each uh, individual game. And I think that design principles or at least design heuristics carry over very very well 
uh, across genres. Yeah, and I haven't been at Clay from the beginning, but I will say that, um, you know, my couple of years here, I, I definitely have noticed that I, I think we, we do a great job of exploring new design stuff, but you also, you don't want to just spend two, three years making a game and just, it's a total crapshoot, right? You're like, no idea if it's going to succeed or not. So I think we, we try as best as possible to maximize like, what have we learned in the last game? What did we learn from Mark the Ninja? What did we learn from Don't Starve? Okay, let's make something totally new. Let's explore some new design space. But let's try to use those lessons to make sure it's good and interesting and, and, and good in the, in the way we know we can make a game good. Um, and in that way, I think we're trying really hard to explore interesting design space without just shooting randomly in the dark, right? Without just throwing it at a dartboard and seeing where it lands. Um, and that, that's sort of how you keep yourself grounded in, in a world where, you know, you could design anything, right? There, there's so many possibilities. What are you going to pick? Uh, you know, part of it is taking the things that we couldn't do in other games and just going way down that rabbit hole, seeing what, seeing what a different thing looks like. Ultimately, I, I also feel uh, pretty strongly that, uh, you know, you know, um, Clay's been around for, for a little time now. And, um, you know, one, one of the, the things that have wor has worked for us is that we do build experiences that people haven't had before. And so I actually think that that's a, a big strength from also even a business perspective, even like people want new experiences. So it's almost dangerous if you want to build a long-term company to keep building the same kind of thing over and over. Uh, and so we just try really, really hard to, to say, no, we, we need to push ourselves outside of our boundaries. It is super stressful, though. I mean, <laughs> in, Invisible Ink was, uh, was uh, uh, one of the more stressful things for, for, for me personally. I remember coming into work so many times and just being like, I don't think a procedural stealth game works. Right. Like, uh, in the beginning of this thing, mm -hmm. or coming into work and just being like, this is not fun. This is not going to work. Like, we need to design levels or we need to do something else. And then I would just go home and I would just be so, you know, just eating away at me. Like, how are we going to do this? And, uh, you know, a little, a lot of luck and a lot of, you know, just good heuristics and, uh, and, and trying to stick to good principles, even if you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel right away. Um, and uh, it's terrifying to do a game like this because... You know, I, I mean, it could it could have just not worked. It's very possible. I mean, I, I think that you know when when I when I really came onto the project around Alpha, mm. right, and then I, I looked at it, I, I felt like oh, there's there's definitely a really good game here. I could feel it already. It's like oh, and I, and I told you this exactly. It's like hey, you know, there's there's something really cool here that people can't find it yet, right? Uh, once you get into it, you understand all the systems. So now we have to actually make it understandable, and that took another two years. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That actually does raise a question for me, though. Um, you know, internally, like, how many games at Clay, like, never end up seeing the, the light of day? I mean, if you're always moving in an experimental direction, there have to be, there have to be misses, right? There, there have to be projects that, that just co don't come together. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, how, how you sort of walk that line between keeping at something the way you did with Invisible Ink and eventually getting to a point where, okay, yeah, procedural stealth can work, does work, is great. Uh, and, and I'm also curious, like, how, how hard you keep pushing ideas, uh, you know, that, that don't pan out. What, what, what's the cutoff point for you guys? Um, certainly there have been um, a lot of projects that never saw the light of day here. Uh, which you'll never hear about, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day it will just kind of come out here and there. I don't know. Uh, but um, uh, I, you know, ultimately, for me, it you know, is there somebody who really, really believes in that and 
uh, and can can prove it um, in in any small way. And I think as a designer, this is why you play games. Like you play games to train your intuition, and your intuition is what keeps you going. It's the difference between this project, there's no fun here, or this fun is limited, or maybe we can do something with this, or I'm seeing the game here, you know? And a big part of it is you have to be like, okay, I see what this can be. I know it's not that, I know it's hard to visualize, but I see what this can be, and I know, I feel supremely confident that it can be something, even if that thing is a year down the line. That's what Jamie was saying when he came into Alpha, and he saw that, right? You saw that, that version of the game. And I think that's why, that's why you have to play games as a designer and, and train your intuition like that, because it's almost, it's almost not something you can really uh, do heuristically or do as a you know, spreadsheet or, or, or a prototype or whatever, right? Um, it's almost something you really do have to just know um, because of how many games you've played, because you've played Dwarf Fortress and you've played FTL and you've played whatever, right? All these games that go to show you all the different kinds of games that, all the different kinds of ways that, that weird games can work. Um, and you can see like, okay, this game will work. This thing will work. I, I will say that um, I was not sure that we could actually get to the point where people could actually understand it. Right. That, that was, I mean, I could see that it was interesting a long time ago, but uh, you know, leading up to early access, I was, you know, just in the office and there, you know, my head down, just trying to figure out, racking my head, how do I get people to not shoot that guy? Right. You know, and, right. You know I'm just, oh, I, I don't know. I thought we solved this with Mark of the Ninja, and nope, we did not. Um, and uh, it was, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was vaguely terrifying. <laughs> Well, uh, I think the game is, has shaped up beautifully. I've had a, had a great time playing it, and uh, it was Thank telling so me when I, when I saw it at PAX East that it did seem like a game that took a lot of time to explain to people. Uh, there, there was a lot of like, okay, here's what you're going to do, and here, here's how you want to approach the game. It was also a game that was very hard to pull people away from, though. Once people had sort of grokked what the game was about, um, you know, it was, it was interesting just the sort of random people sitting down to play this game uh, tended to, you know, basically stay as long as the booth, uh, the people at the booth would let them. It was, it was really interesting. And how did you feel about the the final version? Did you feel like that was any different? Was it still the same kind of feel where you know it took a long time to get into, and then once you once it got the hooks into you? That's that's difficult for me to assess uh, because I saw it for the first time at PAX East uh, two years ago. Um, uh, well, it would have been last year, not the most recent spring. So you know, uh, but. So, so at that point, that was probably where I, where I did most of my learning, and then PAX this year was kind of a refresher, and then playing it in, in these last few weeks, it was I, I had still sort of figured out what was going on. Now, I will say, um, you know, my PAX playthroughs, I'd understood the principles very well, but I had not remotely internalized uh, sort of the, the way to approach uh, the, the levels. It took me a long time to fully understand the dynamic of... Uh, you know the exact way sort of guards operate and detect you. Uh, the exact way that like the alert level works. It took me a long, a long time to learn how to play the game with any degree of skill beyond just sort of, you know, run to the next room, hopefully find a corner, stun a guard, run like hell. Uh, which is not a, which was not a long-term winning strategy. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it's been it's been really enjoyable playing it, um, and. Uh, I, I am I am really delighted to, to see sort of I, I was skeptical that sort of an, an XCOM approach to stealth could work, uh, but it's so it's were been... we. <laughs> it sounds thank like you it. so much. That's so fantastic to hear. That makes me so happy. Thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, 
so that covers it for Invisible Ink. It will launch on uh, it will launch on Steam on May twelfth, and you can learn more about it at invisibleinkgame.com. Uh, this episode was produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted over on idlethumbs.net. Uh, you can discuss this episode with other listeners and Idle Thumbs readers on the Idle Thumbs forums. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead, but until then, good night. Night, all. Good night. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us, guys. Good night.